0: Hi, everyone, this is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Kimball, great to see you, my friend. Really good to get you on Real Vision. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I'm really excited about this conversation because I heard you speak in, in Utah, and I was just floored by some of the things you're doing. But before we get into all of that, let's go back a bit in the past and give people a bit of your story for those who don't know you and, and how you got into what you're doing now because it's, it's an amazing story in its own right. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, no, it is a, it's an unusual, long and winding road. Um, yeah, I started out, I grew up in South Africa, and I came to Canada to study, and my brother and I were determined and excited to be in America and uh, uh, become, you know, the Ameri- you know pursue the American dream. And we found our way to California in 1995. We built a company that was the first maps and door-to-door directions on the internet. Very, very uh, technology forward, like the backbone of of that technology. Uh, Yahoo acquired us in 99. Why
0: did you come up with that idea? Why did you pursue that of all of the things?
1: Uh, we we were so excited about the internet. We, we were really kind of brainstorming on what, what would be a good use of the internet. And we thought that the yellow pages with maps and door-to-door directions tied in would be cool. But the reason we even knew that door-to-door directions existed was somewhat of a of a accident, um, my brother overheard a conversation that there's this company called Navtech that was building the, the, the navigation software for Hertz never lost, which was a piece of, uh, software and hardware that had not been released yet. Uh, and they, Hertz had put $300 million into this technology, uh, to, uh, to make it possible in their rental cars so people could find their way around, never thinking about using it for the internet. And we, asked them, we went, we kind of found our way to their offices and we asked them, and we are 22 and 23, if we could, we could use their data and put it on this crazy thing called the internet. And it was hilarious. They, they, they didn't really know what to do with us. So they made us write a one sign, a one page contract that basically said, you can use all of our content, but if you ever make $1 on it, you have to call us and we have to figure out a deal. And, uh, <laughs> It was incredible, you know. So we got this this uh, amazing software and data set that that Herzog literally put three hundred million dollars into, and we got it for free. And for about a year, we used it without, and they were so happy because someone was using it. And we we built this uh, amazing thing called an interactive map, where you could use your mouse and and uh, you know drag it and, and zoom in and zoom out. And I mean, if you've never seen that before. Which up until that point, no one had ever seen that before. <laughs> you just you just could pick your you're picking your your jaw up off the floor. I mean, it, it was so incredible. So we we got funded by a venture firm, and uh, you know worked very hard to build a business. It was actually a super tough uh, company because, as you can see even today, there's no money in yellow pages or door to door directions and maps. It it really deserved, it really belonged as part of a search engine. And so, yeah. for many years, we were trying to build a business, but actually, the business was not really there. And so, it did find a, a nice home at Yahoo, and it became a, a big part of the internet. But it's pretty cool. We we managed to uh, we were we were part of the early days of the internet and creating something that is still today used, you know, ten times a day by the average person.
0: Amazing. So, what was the next part of your journey after you'd sold that?
1: So, my brother did, went and did PayPal, and I, I helped him. I stayed as an advisor, but. Uh, my passion was food so i went to new york to learn how to cook and i went to the french culinary institute where where did that passion come from i've just cooked since i was a kid you know i love i love the community that comes from food uh when i was 12 years old i started cooking for my family and it was beautiful i would cook and the family would you know it's a very intense and busy and high energy family we would sit down and we would connect we'd get to know each other's day and uh Get to know each other a little bit better. And uh, it was really beautiful. It was something that I kept with me all the way through college. I would cook for all my friends. We, I, I didn't have any money, but what I would do is I'd go get uh, this I don't know if it's sold in the US, but in America, sorry, in Canada, it's called craft Dinner. And it's basically macaroni with, <laughs> with powdered cheese, which would cost me 39 cents per box. And then I would get uh, Wiener sausages for uh, the cheapest thing you can possibly imagine. And for about $10, I would feed 40 or 50 of my friends with a giant pot of macaroni and cheese and sausage and it, like that sort of stuff. It wasn't so much about is the food fancy or whatever. It was more about the community of bringing friends together. And
0: then he went to the French Culinary Institute. How was that? It was, uh, it was hardcore. Uh,
1: the French Culinary Institute is, uh, at least it was, it's now called the International Culinary Institute. It was very French, very old school. The, the closest analogy would be this movie Full Metal Jacket, where the, the, <laughs> the sergeant basically screams at you all the time. I used to joke that I'm not going to cooking school. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna to go to this place where they're gonna scream at me for six hours, and afterwards I'm gonna say thank you.
0: <laughs> and, and then that led you into the restaurant business.
1: Yeah, so I actually graduated just before nine eleven. I was never planning on doing the restaurant business. I never thought that would be my path. It's usually the worst thing to do. It's
0: great for your vanity and terrible for your pockets generally.
1: You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, until COVID came along, it was actually a pretty successful uh, restaurant company. Uh, that doesn't mean you make much money, but you you don't lose money.
0: Yeah, um, which is a good yeah. thing in restaurants.
1: Yeah, it's a good thing, but you know, it doesn't compare to the technology world where you can really really hit. Strike gold. There isn't really gold in this business. It's more of a passion. I had this amazing opportunity to cook for the firefighters after, after 9/11, and that's where I sort of realized, wow, this is this is really powerful. This is uh, the the connecting to peop- people, to each other through food. It was almost like I just couldn't not do a restaurant. It was uh, I had all the skills. I, I I felt the love of it, and so I, I did a road trip around the U.S. I didn't want to do it in New York. And I did a road trip around the U.S. with my wife at the time and found this town, Boulder, which I think is, I'm still here 20 years later, it's the most beautiful place to live in, in the country, opened a restaurant called The Kitchen. The, the farm to table was a concept that sort of came about in the 70s, but but no one had really figured out how to how to systematize it. And so it really just hit, was there a couple of restaurants, Chez East in California, there's one in London, but really wasn't really a thing. And my co-founder, Hugo Matheson, uh, came from this restaurant in London called the River Cafe, which was another farm-to-table restaurant
0: from the city. Which is a great, one of my favorite restaurants in the world. One
1: of the most amazing restaurants. And he challenged me to say, hey, why don't we try and do this in Colorado? And we talked to farmers. We said, hey, this is what we want to do. There was a lot of mistrust amongst farmers, between farmers and restaurants back then. And a lot of it had to do with just, we just didn't understand each other's business. You know, restaurants really have to manage food costs they they for the most part, have to know what the menu is ahead of time. In our case, we said to the farmers, "Okay, fine. We will we will change our menu every day as long as you get the food to us by 4 p.m. And then we will rewrite the menu based on whatever you're growing. But you have to give us a price that makes sense. And and that was very attractive to the farmers because they always had extra produce. Uh, a lot of the food waste actually happens on farms. And by saying that to to farmers, whatever you have, we you bring it over. We'll you know we'll figure out a price, but it's fair price." But we'll take whatever you've got, and it worked so well for for a long time. It didn't scale because, of course, that that is very hard to scale. But what I started working with them on was, why don't I set you up with email? Why don't <laughs> uh, I encourage you? I didn't buy them a computer, but they didn't have computers. I was like, you might want to get a computer. Here's how it could help you. And uh, this is 2004, right? So even though it was 10 years after the internet, farmers just didn't have computers. There were no smartphones. And now, almost 20 years later, all of our farmers and all many of the farmers around the country now are part of proper supply chain systems. And so they're able to grow amazing food for local restaurants. And Farm to Table has become a movement that that, uh, we really helped kickstart,
0: which um, we're really proud of. Amazing. And what led you then into... Learning gardens and that whole idea, because it's an extension, you know, this is a journey and it's very clear that it's a journey that you're going through. So the next part, you obviously read about farm to table, realize that people can grow food. How does this next idea come into your head?
1: So we had a we had a, an employee of ours named Bryce Brown at the kitchen who who said that uh, many of the kids in, in Boulder don't have any understanding of food. His grandfather worked works in New Zealand, or at the time worked in New Zealand on, on school gardens, and he asked if we would support him to to do that, not a hundred percent from the kitchen, but the kitchen would would provide philanthropic funding, and I would as well, and he would go raise money from other people, and he created a a nonprofit in Boulder called the Grow Foundation, and for a few years we we funded him on that, and, and I joined his board, uh, but it wasn't really scaling. It was it was a was a was a beautiful local nonprofit, and. Uh, I had at that point now gone back into to technology I was working on a real-time search engine which um, is you know, so it's basically the ability to search for what's going on right now so if you type in uh, uh, Tesla Motors you'd learn not just here's their website but you'd also here's the news about them here's some tweets about them you know things like that so it was a company I was building in in the 2000s But I'd left food and I was pretty unhappy that I'd left food. I was, again, there was much more, much better chance of making money, but it was not my passion. And uh, an incredible, probably worst and best thing that ever happened to me, I went down a ski hill in 2010 on an inner tube. It was a children's run, so not supposed to be dangerous. And the tube flipped, I was going 35 miles an hour. I landed on my head, I ruptured my spine at C6 and C7. And I was paralyzed for three days. Wow. And I had um, a real real come to Jesus around my life. You know, just this um, fact that I was putting all of my energy into technology, clearly useful stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was the good, the good things, but, but it's just not my passion. And uh, what I decided in that hospital if, if I was going to be okay, and the doctors were, by the way, saying, you're paralyzed, but this is a way where you were broken, if we can fix you. So they were telling me I would be okay, but I obviously was hard to rock that when you can't move your body. And um, I just told myself that if I, if I did survive this, I would, uh, I would focus on food and focus on kids and food in particular, helping kids connect to food. And so when I got out of, uh, it was two months of uh, being horizontal. Um, when I got out of that, I talked to my co-founder, Hugo, and to Bryce, who was running this nonprofit about, hey, could we do something that's more scalable? and reaching many, many more schools. And so this concept of the learning garden, um, my wife at the time, Jen Lewin, designed this incredible modular system that we could build in a factory and build thousands a day if we wanted, if the funding was there. And uh, it would be easier to teach in, it would be ADA accessible, it would have uh, the irrigation built in. So it's a very, very sophisticated system. And uh, uh, in the process, you know, Bryce decided he just wants to focus on Boulder. So I decided, well, I'll just do it outside of Boulder. And we created a nonprofit called Big Green. And from 2011 until COVID, so 2011 to 2020, or early 2020, in nine years, we built 650 learning gardens across the country. These are 2,000 square foot, uh, $70,000 outdoor classrooms teaching 350,000 kids each day. Uh, training teachers on how to do that. It was uh, it was beautiful. And what are you what are you teaching the kids? Primarily science. So what we learned to do was rather than say to a teacher you have to do something extra in the garden, we said we are going to uh, work with you on your science curriculum, and simply show you the lessons that you would, could do outside if the weather is nice and and you want to do it. And so the teachers didn't have to create new work. They just said oh this this particular science lesson. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but in America, we know literally what paragraph on Tuesday, March 27th, the teacher has to be teaching. So we actually know wow. that to that level of detail. That's just built school core, core curriculum in America. And so it gives you the power to build lessons that on a, you know, that morning we can say, here's the lesson. We'd send them an email. Here's the lesson you could teach in the garden today, designed in conjunction with other teachers. So we had a easy 10,000 teachers in the network designing lessons and sharing them with each other. Uh, and it, um, it was just a
0: beautiful, beautiful program. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at Evernorth.com/slash wonder. So cut to the pandemic. Talk me through your crypto journey, because this is where these two worlds of two very different worlds come together in a way that I think is very clever. Um, so talk me through your crypto journey you know yeah, talk, no, talk this is all and then how this all comes together because it's great i love it
1: <laughs> yes it's uh it is an amazing amazing uh what's the right word discovery i almost because it's almost like an invention an invention um so uh we we were basically uh, what we were doing prior to covid is, was now against the law you're not allowed to uh, do general construction on on school grounds still to this day you're not allowed to do it uh, because you're bringing people from outside of the school into into the into school grounds because of COVID, that's not allowed. Obviously, schools were even closed for a year, a year and a half. So obviously, there's no, no teachers to teach, no kids to teach. So really devastating for for Big Green that we couldn't do what we what we love. And uh, July of 2021 came along. We were expecting to go back into schools, and we were told that it would be another year of not being allowed to be on school grounds. And so it's okay for us to kind of say, we'll take a one year pause, but it wasn't really okay to say, we really don't know when this is going to come back, if if ever. And so we we changed our model and we said to, to ourselves, you know, we're well supported philanthropically. We have a great reputation. We've been doing food justice work for 10, 10 11 years at that point. Uh, what if we take a different approach? Uh, why, why don't we try to, instead of traveling to Detroit and building gardens, why don't we try to fund someone in Detroit who could work in schools? and if you're local, you can sometimes get a, get around the rules because principals will just kind of let you in. But if you're in if you're a national uh, nonprofit, you just you just can't. And so we we started to reach out to nonprofits to say, hey, would you guys be interested in building learning gardens in schools? Would you be interested in um, training teachers on how to do you know teach science in the garden? Uh, would you be interested in in other forms of food justice? And and we really learned that that the answer was yes to everything. Yes, they would love to build learning gardens. But we also found teachers saying, "You don't even need to work with a non profit. Just fund us directly. We will build it in our school." And so we would send the equipment to the school, and the because uh, if you can't get an outsider to come in, the teacher can do it though, because they're they're part of the the school community. And they can bring in the parents to build the garden. So we now send the equipment of the learning garden full setup to a school, and a teacher with some funding, and a teacher will um, will put it together in, in partnership with uh, with their facility staff and with um, with, with parents. Um, so that was that one thing started to happen, which we thought was pretty cool. But the other nonprofits we were reaching out to were saying, "Well, we don't we don't really feel comfortable doing learning gardens because it's really not what we know how to do." But we do do these other things, and we do these these other food justice work. Would you be interested in supporting that? And uh, at the same time, I was learning about this concept of a decentralized autonomous organization.
0: Where did you get into that journey from? I want to hear the crypto side of stuff. You obviously must have dabbled, and suddenly end up in DAOs. Talk me through this bit, and then we'll bring it all together. You know, it's actually
1: amazing. I had I had never bought a coin. I had never bought an NFT. And I was super fascinated with DAOs. So to me, the the Web3 world is, is not any one of those things. It's kind of like a blend of these extraordinary inventions. I was really fascinated with this idea that we could bring nonprofits into a community, a DAO, and they would help us in a crowdsource kind of way, figure out where the funding should go. And uh, I also... Have seen a you know a lot of inequity out there uh, in in and a lot of power disparity, and this was a, a very cool invention that would share power in a in a very transparent way, but also in a very equitable way. Everyone gets an equal vote, and um, uh, it's also it also scales essentially infinitely, uh, which is very cool. You don't kind of do something and, oh well, it's not going to last forever, but you could do it for a little while. Actually, no. If you do this. It lasts forever, uh, and uh, that's. I was kind of like I like that kind of. That kind of reminds me of the internet. You know, if you work on the internet, it's and it's useful. It's useful forever. It's it's very cool, and it scales essentially infinitely as long as the internet continues to grow. So so I I, I had this friend of mine named Bear Kite, who who's a, a Web three evangelist, and he he and I we were neighbors in 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 our, in our home in Baja. And I would have him uh, in, you know, in my ear about DAOs all the time. And you know, his view of the world, or, or many of the Web3 people view of the world, was around some way people could make money or uh, a tool that could be built that would, um, would be used by people. And again, it's a business model, it's for-profit work. And not, nothing against that, I do a lot of for-profit work, but I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in the nonprofit side. And I also didn't feel comfortable endorsing any coin so because that just it, it just didn't feel right. Um, and so I said, well, what if there's a way we could do a DAO for, for philanthropy? And so in partnership with with him, as well as a, an amazing DAO architect named Matt Markman, we brainstormed on. A, we built a white paper and you can go to dao.biggreen.org and you can read the, the white paper or the light paper. It's going to be turned into a white paper as we get to the end of this year. And the, the, the idea was to uh, put decision-making power into the front lines of food justice. So we would go to nonprofits that are working in the front lines in Detroit or Atlanta or Newark or these tough, tough communities and say to them, join this DAO. The way you join is you have to be funded. You have to receive funding. And once you receive funding, you get to vote on the next, on the people who then get funding after you can't vote on yourself the nonprofits said <laughs> i mean honestly these are people without a twitter account it reminds me of working with farmers in 2004 they don't have a twitter account uh, and i said you got to have a twitter account even though that's not necess- necessary for web3 in the world of web3 you kind of kind of kind of have to right and um, yeah. um and i said and then you're going to have to set yourself up with a wallet so you can vote and they're like what is a what do you mean by a wallet you mean like <laughs> the one i can't my pocket? so uh the onboarding was was uh, amazing to teach these uh, very uh, bipoc uh, uh, interesting you know, food justice warriors who work with their hands in the soil to get onto a web browser and download Metamask and learn what that is, just kind of grok what what, what a what a what a web3 wallet is. and and then to explain to them the power that they actually have is something they've never had before. And it's real power. In fact, what's nice about Web three is it's all written there. All the code is there. If you if you follow the rules and don't don't um, break the rules of the DAO, no one can take your vote away. You 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 are you are a uh, you're, you're a member of the DAO. It's decentralized autonomous organization. There's no one with central power, and that is just something that blew their minds. And so we, we we launched it in Q, Q4 of uh, 2021, and we, we moved very fast, which was really cool. Another great thing about Web3 was the speed that we could move it, move at.
0: You even had the guys from the Constitution DAO um, helping you work on this. Yeah, we had the
1: Constitution DAO. We had probably about 50 Web3 contributors. That, that I, I got to give a great thank you out to the Web3 community because when I was working on this, I I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't say, oh, I'm a Web3 expert. This is going to be an obvious use of it. It was more the other way around. I think this could be used. This, this We could use Web3 to scale this idea. Okay, who do I need to talk to so I don't sound, I don't do something and I'm just totally wrong? And so we we spent at least two hours with about 50 different Web3 folks who themselves spent a few hours outside of those calls on the white paper as well as um, giving us feedback. And, and And it was a Google Doc that we allowed anyone in that group to comment and, and give us their feedback. And as a result, we came out with a white paper that I think is really effective. It, uh, it is true to the Web3 ideals. It um, is true to the philanthropic goal of this. This is not a money-making DAO. This is a way for a donor to put money to work in a in a way that is that matches
0: their ideology. So, explain how it works. So, if I come as a donor, it then gets distributed by the DAO, decentralized manner, to the individual top um, projects in kind of underprivileged areas, and it's allocated by the people themselves.
1: Right. So, if you're a donor uh, at a certain level, right now you have to donate over a hundred thousand dollars, and you get a vote as well. Right. Um, but if you're under a hundred thousand dollars, we will start including them as voters uh, once the experiment is over. We're just not one hundred percent sure how to do that. The um, the 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 donors can vote as an equal donor to the nonprofit. So, if you uh, uh, if you are a donor, you don't get like a hundred thousand votes. You get you get one vote. And if you are a nonprofit, you get, and you're a recipient of whatever dollar amount, you get one one vote. So how much money you put in does not does not affect your 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 voting power. And we we, we chose that intentionally to not um, let a donor kind of ruin the energy, ruin the the goal of the DAO, which is the DAO, right? Which is to decentralize decision making. I put a million dollars in to kick it off. wasn't sure how it would be received because uh, brand new, no one's ever seen this before. And you know, in the past six months, we've maybe seven months, we've raised over six million dollars, and uh, we have over we have almost two thousand donors in the DAO
0: at an average donation of like nine hundred dollars. It's just incredible. And how many participants are in the DAO on the other side? So the recipients. So how big is the DAO essentially now?
1: We really also wanted to be careful not to move very fast in the in the size of the DAO. So. Uh, Matt Markman came up with this concept of progressively decentralizing. So mm. it started with six nonprofits, Big Greens, one of them, and then five uh, real incredible nonprofits that we knew very well, that we trusted, that were on board to to figure out Web three and and be leaders in the DAO, uh, leaders spiritual leaders, not not like voting leaders. They, they get the same vote as everyone else. So we have six people, six nonprofits in Q, in Q four of 2021 that were the leaders in the DAO, and they chose ten. Nonprofits to join in Q1 of this year, so February March of this year, and then the Dow. Uh, we're kind of in an experimental phase, so we, we we the rules are a little flexible until we firm them up. But uh, the first first round, uh, Big Green chose. Second round, those six people chose. So we grew from six to sixteen, and then in uh, Q2, so April to June of this year, we added two donor votes. So I'm one of them, and another another donor. And, um, the 18 of us or 16 plus two voted on a pool of maybe a hundred nonprofits that were asking for funding and food justice. We chose 36 of them. We used quadratic funding to do one round of votes where it's a, it's a two week long process where you, you can go in and do your vote. Oh, if, if it was up to me, I would give this amount of money to this nonprofit. I would use this much budget for this quarter. And, and then, um, uh, the system is is called Othello, E T H E L O and there and what happens is it will tell you okay great you've put your vote in combined with all the other votes here's where it kind of ends up and now you can actually go back and change your vote and so you have a full 2 weeks to collaborate over discord between other other voters and it was a phenomenal community building exercise because you're 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 learning about not just uh, of course the other voters but you're, the other non the, the grant potential non nonprofits are also on the Discord. You can ask them questions. You get to know them, and so by the middle of June we had decided on on the recipients and it was I think we gave away about seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars to thirty six nonprofits, um, so anywhere from ten to fifty thousand dollars per nonprofit. It was uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, an experiment still, I would say that, that um, things broke several times, people were still struggling to be on board, and you know there's all these learning uh, growing pains. And yet everyone was super psyched. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done grant making at scale, but when you have a hundred nonprofits that are asking you for, for funding, it would take you a1,000 you know, hours to, to decide who gets what. And what we did was a crowdsourced approach with 18 of us deciding. And you know we definitely all spent a few hours on it, no question. But um, because they're in the Dose discord, because you could talk to them, there was a sort of a sense of trust between the, the nonprofits and the, and the voters. Uh, and we were able to do that without having to have this huge overhead that, that any foundation would have to have.
0: And how does the reporting go back into the DAO structure? So the DAO makes the allocation of, of, of funds. Obviously, it wants to see some sort of ROI, whatever the metrics are for that, and whether the project was successful and the capital was used efficiently. How, how does that process work?
1: Well, I think that's what's so beautiful about a DAO. So because it's weird, we're decentralized, not only do we uh, get a you know, regular communication over discord between all the nonprofits, as the DAO grows, we are geographically dispersed. And so people who are doing work in Atlanta, a nonprofit, will have other, other members of the DAO in that same city. And so there'll be some uh, on-the-ground review of the work, just just, just anecdotally, because people will connect with each other. And then there'll be regular communication of a Discord. And uh, a a nonprofit cannot ask for more funding in the same year. So one year from now, they might choose. They want to ask for more funding, in which case they have to burn their token and they can nominate themselves to receive more funding. And the Discord will be where the community will review their work,
0: and the nonprofit can choose to put whatever they want up there. Oh, So to get a following year's funding, you need to have another uh, another token in the DAO, and the original one gets burnt. That's right. So
1: you have to, uh, and we we believe that will be a way for the community to evaluate the, the nonprofit and decide whether or not they deserve another round of funding.
0: Fascinating. I mean, really interesting mechanics. The thing that really hooked me on this is I've been talking about this for a while before I saw what you've done, thinking DAOs are an obvious way for charitable organizations to coalesce all of these ideas from people. Because you think of stuff like World Wildlife Fund, amazing, but it's a decision making hierarchy of which if we donate any money, We don't really know where it goes, and we feel like you would have much Needed projects don't, and people get frustrated. And it's a whole complicated world of philanthropy, as you know. But this, I think, is scalable for everybody.
1: It really is. It's also transparent. So you might disagree with what the group or the, the DAO decides to fund, but you will know exactly what they funded and where that money went. And you can even make an argument in the Discord, saying, "Hey guys, I disagree," and here's my argument. And hey, hopefully we can make a change in the next next round, because you're part of the community. Uh, with uh, with traditional funding, uh, Big Green World Wildlife Federation, Big Green was a nonprofit. It still is, by the way. We still do nonprofit work uh, besides the Dow. If a donor provides us funding, uh, and it's the same goes for any nonprofit. You know, we might say you know this is going to help support 10 learning gardens but but there isn't really a, a you know it really goes into a, a pool of funding and we we do our best to approximately hit that goal but it's it's not tangible to the donor it's not um transparent to the donor and it is hierarchical at, at the end of the day I'm the CEO of big green I, I decide and uh thankfully people do trust me but It's way better if there's just total transparency. So there's this concept of trustless in in a DAO that is pretty cool, where you, there is, of course, an element of trust in everything. But what's beautiful about a DAO is you get all of the information, and you are asked to participate in the process. There's no better way to to be informed.
0: And I think it can scale even larger, even for campaigns for big philanthropic organizations, you know, for famine relief or whatever, where the specific needs it can get allocated distributed down to very localized levels really effectively in ways that just wouldn't happen by people on the ground who, who know what's needed
1: I think that this scales extremely well whenever the information on the ground is distributed so one great example is deforestation so if you if you try and do support of nonprofit that is trying to stop deforestation, you're going to support someone in uh, making this up in Sacramento, and they work in the Amazon as well. The Amazon is huge, and so if you are expecting a wonderful, good, well-intentioned, good-hearted nonprofit in Sacramento to to do a good job of protecting the Amazon, uh, you're just pretending in your mind. There's no way. But if if you can get people on the ground uh, across the the border of the Amazon, uh, Brazil, Ecuador, Peru and get them to join a DAO and say you're going to receive funding to help figure out where uh, how to how to protect the forest how to protect the amazon and then you're also going to participate in this discord and you're going to let us know how it's going and together as a dao we're going to protect the amazon and you don't need to be in the same geographic location and you have this incredible scalable technology a blend of web3 tokens to discord To even Twitter, that to me kind of makes up the Web three ecosystem. You uh, you can protect the Amazon rainforest effectively, cost effectively, in a transparent way, and in a decentralized way.
0: Because you know, one of the key things I've always thought about, like we've got this beautiful little island here called Little Cayman, where I've got a house and it's untouched, and it doesn't really appear on big, you know, environmental charities because it's a small little place. But the people who live on that island really care. And they will do anything. And with small amounts of funding to regionalize local people, you can make probably a larger difference than a large amount of funding to one thing. Absolutely.
1: Not not only that, the overhead required to, so if you're a foundation, let's imagine you want to support in fact we have this amazing nonprofit we support in the US Virgin Islands, which is maybe a similar comparison to the Cayman Islands. It's US territory. So under the Big Green is a 501c3 under U.S. law. We support U.S. nonprofits, so, so that is a United States territory, and it, it and qualifies as a 501c3. But they're a small nonprofit. They can't do outreach onto the mainland. They, they, it's very hard for them to be seen from from foundations in America. But a foundation has to spend or is able to spend 15 percent of their budget on administration. So when they get all of the grant requests, they might give away hundred million dollars a year, but actually 15 million of that goes to overhead so they only give away 85 million a year. And in addition to that if you're a nonprofit you're allowed to spend 25% of your budget on fundraising. So you take another 25% out of that you're down to under 60 million. So you've lost 40 million in the in the process to give funding away. In a DAO you have the the we we use a we have a 5% overhead because there is cost of course to just managing the DAO. But but none of that cost is the same kind of cost. So we'd the nonprofits who are participating do not need to have a fundraising budget. They need to simply engage in the Discord. Um, in the in the case of the of the Dow Treasury, we use crowdsourcing to determine who receives the funding, so we don't need the administration budget either. So we're now working with a much higher pool of funding, and most of our money goes to the nonprofits versus almost half going to administration on one side or the other. So if you think about that, those folks in the in Little Cayman where you are, if they were to try to receive funding from national, international foundations, they would need a huge budget. And the foundation giving them the money would also need a huge budget just to figure out if that's the right recipient. And in a DAO, they're equal. They're seen as equals, whether they're based in New York City or they're in Little Cayman. Uh, If they're working on the cause, that matters to to the donors.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify how are you going to let? I mean, you're still going through the learning phase and there's, you know, you're still ironing out all the wrinkles. But soon, the next year or two years, whatever the, the amount of time is, you'll have done something really interesting that needs to be shared with a lot of people, not just for your own purposes, but because this architecture of what you've built seems like it's going to be a much more efficient way for philanthropy in particularly these kind of very you know, projects where it can get really at the micro level. How are you going to share that with people? Have, have, have people come to you already and started saying, what the hell are you up to? This is interesting. You know, it
1: actually has been wonderful. We've gotten many foundations, many philanthropists have come to us and said, uh, for example, the deforestation one was one where could, could we use the, your technology or your white paper? or Frankly, could you do it for us? And uh, my answer to them was, uh Really, give us a few months, right? Uh, we really want to get through this this uh, experimental phase, and they have uh, they're they're watching closely. And so, our experimental phase ends September 30th. We we have uh, 55 members of the DAO now. This uh, the next voting round has already kicked off. Where we're now in the final fourth quarter, essentially of our of our because we started we started in fourth quarter last year. So the third quarter this year will be the end of it. And what we're going to do is. We're going to now use 55 voters to vote on this next round. And we now start to get into this pretty scaled uh, doubt. It's no longer just six people choosing 10. It's We're going to be maybe choosing 100 this time. And I think that uh, if, if the last quarter is any sign, this next quarter will be very successful and very effective. Um,
0: Because we we know we're very efficient, but how effective are we is is going to be interesting. It's amazing what you're doing. I think it's a brilliant idea, both with food justice. I'm a huge supporter of that. And also the self-sufficiencies of small communities of growing their own foods and some of the things you're passionate about. But then stumbling across this much bigger idea in this that is really possibly going to change philanthropy forever in the ways that so many of us don't like because of how little money goes away and how the decision making process happens and turn it completely upside down to create something supremely efficient while the whole world is focusing on how much can how much money can i make from web3 and can i make money from this token you said no forget all of that that's interesting but here's a technology that can be used in a very different way and can change lives. I think it's brilliant. So well done.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I've also been I, I gotta say thank you to the web three community. The philanthropy that's come out of you guys has been amazing. Um whether people are donating ten dollars or donating a hundred thousand dollars, the there's a real desire in web three to be philanthropic, to show that the web three community you know, web three ideology, not not of course let's take web yet? Do you uh,
0: accept crypto yet. Do you accept course, crypto
1: payments? Yeah. we are we are all about it, all about it. Um, <laughs> and I know we've been accepting crypto prior to doing um, uh, the DAOs. To be clear, we love we love crypto, but the philanthropic desire in Web three, what I think the sweet spot we've hit, and anyone who wants to form a DAO like this will will also benefit from it, is that you're asking philanthropists that have done very well from Web three, whatever version of crypto they they have they've succeeded in, and you're saying to them, here's a way to be philanthropic. Inside of your own ide- ideology, you can do it in a Web three way, and uh, and that that's really how uh, how we've done so well. I think uh, I do believe people care about food justice, but I think the primary reason they've been supporting us is to
0: show that Web three can be used to create a new way of philanthropic giving. And I'm sure you've thought about it, but clearly there's an opportunity for NFTs. Oh yeah, thought, for sure. I, I mean, I think you know as a way of fundraising the way of people showing that they are part of this movement, this organization. an NFT has value for that and gets you to feel like, because as you said, smaller donors don't get a vote. But if they get an NFT to prove that they're part of this, they can create their own communities around this as well.
1: You're absolutely right. We we do have an idea that I won't share right now because it'll be cool to share at the right time, that we'll be leveraging NFTs in a... In a way that is, uh, it's a badge of honor, of course, as you just described, they, they can proudly say they're a part of it, but it's also a way, we believe, for us to grow internationally. So one of the challenges with our current structure is that when people make a donation, we give them a tax deduction, it's an IRS-governed um, uh, treasury, and so it, we really are, we're, we're stuck in the United States. And if we do NFTs, we, uh, those NFTs, they could be any price, it could be a dollar, they could be $1,000. And they're not they're not subject to the IRS restrictions, and it would enable us to go to Little Cayman or to the United Kingdom or to other places. So I think we we are pretty excited about um, that, you know, exploring that path.
0: And also, I love the idea of, and I'm exploring quite a few things like this. Of your, all the donors are like minded people, but they're not connected to each other. Yeah. But if they have NFTs and there's a way you can connect them. Now, who knows what magic comes out of that? There's magic when you put people together with kind of similar missions in life and they can come from diverse backgrounds, whatever it may be. But there's something about building a community around what you're doing, whether it's in the narrow defined concepts or the broader concepts, that I think is incredibly powerful. There's a big unlock to come from that too.
1: I completely agree. The Web3, web no matter what. You say about philanthropy or not for profit work or whatever, uh, because there's always a way to, there's always benefits, there's always pros and cons or whatever. But the one thing you cannot deny is the incredible superpower that Web3 has for for creating community. It is something like I've never seen before in my life. The community we're creating in the Big Green DAO is just extraordinary. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And doing that with donors through NFTs is.
0: Is a great way to continue to build that community. Brilliant. Kimball, listen, thanks very much. And I can't wait to hear back from you in about a year's time to see where this crazy journey's gone from here. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. What surprised me the most about this interview is how big an idea Kimball's got here. Not only Is he testing it and it's working at the scale that he's currently doing. But there's probably a big unlock for the future of philanthropy and even society as a whole. The most impactful thing for me here is how asset allocation can be brought down to micro level in a more effective, efficient way than we've ever seen before. Now, again, this may apply to philanthropy, But it probably applies to capital management too, and many other things. There's a really big idea in DAOs here that's not just based around trading cryptocurrencies or investing in the DAO, but in the way of decentralizing decision making. Amazing stuff. Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed listening, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world Blockchain technology is transforming literally everything, from communities, to healthcare, to real estate, to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 300,000 members around the world understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation, and maybe of all time. And even better, Real Vision Crypto is completely free. All you need to do is input your email address and you get full access to all of the videos and the incredible emails too. Please visit realvisioncrypto.com. That's realvisioncrypto.com and start learning about this incredible world.